The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, March 20th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Have you been following the news about the mob hit that took place in New York about a week ago? Some of it makes sense. Francesco Cali, nicknamed Frankie Boy, naturally, lived on Staten Island, of course. He was the Don of the Gambino crime family, sure, sure, sure. And he was gunned down, brazenly gunned down, in broad daylight. Aren't they all? Pre-dawn raid? That's the government. Brazen daytime hit? That, my friends, is the mob. And then it gets freaky. Because the accused gunman, a guy named Anthony Camello, has no known mob ties. But apparently, he did have a thing for Frankie Boy's niece. Niecey girl, I guess. Also, Camello showed up in court with some pro-Donald Trump messages written in pen on his hand. He had the words MAGA forever and united we stand along with in charge forever scribbled on his palm. Oofa. Maybe Camello thinks if he gets named as part of Mueller's investigation, he can cut a deal. And if Camello's cover story about a niece turns out to be a lie and he actually was the trigger man for the Genovese's or the Lucchese's, this guy is singing because Omerta, thine opposite, is Donald Trump. And then there is this part of the story that Camello blames or at least claims the killing on the fact that he was high on marijuana at the time. High on marijuana. <laughs> Dude, I was pulling bangers with some cush and I started imagining, like, what if I was the part of the couch and, like, where would the cushion begin and where would I end and, like, the change in the couch? Like, would that mean I ate it? It was really crazy. You know what I mean, Anthony? Sure, dude. Like, check this out. I got super high on some dank bud and I gunned down Gambino crime boss Frankie Boy Cali. No way, man. Is that when you pass the bowl and it's still kind of lit? Is that like what gunning down Gambino crime boss Frankie Cali means? I'm not up on all of my Hesher jargon. No, man, it, it just means I gunned down Gambino crime boss Frankie Boy Cali. And that was Stoner Theater. What has the mob come to? The Don slipping. Years ago, they never could have gotten to him. Sure, they definitely couldn't have gotten to him with a stoner dude who plays Phil Lesh's part in a dead cover band. Yeah, dude, so my Gumar Antonella is like totally harshing my buzz. Well, I appreciate the offer from Don Migliori. I cannot have an answer for you today until my consigliere gets back from touring with fish. I mean, I knew Luca Brasi slept with the fishes. I just didn't know they spelled it with a PH. At least we know that Anthony Camello has a name just ready to go for him. Anthony the Weed Whacker Camello. A sad day for the mafia. A sad day for stoners. Sad day for Staten Island. Sad day for everyone. Said maybe Donald Trump. This probably does help the brand a little. On the show today, I spiel about the brave senator for whom our president has finally crossed the line. It was babies in cages. No, wait, it wasn't. It was over 4,000 lies. Nope, that's not it. It was paying off the porn star and lying about it repeatedly. No, it was insulting his old friend, the other dead senator. That is where the line is drawn. But first, maternal mortality 
is a far worse problem in this country than you might think, given our wealth and status as a leader in medicine. Alas, much of the U.S. sees women dying in childbirth at rates of countries like Zimbabwe. But there is one state in our country that has addressed the problem extremely efficiently, and it happens to be the biggest state in our country. So we have the best health policy reporter in the country to discuss the example of California and look at maternal health as either inspiring for the solution it crafted or depressing because this is a problem at all. A couple of presidential candidates, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, are talking about an issue that I frankly had not even thought of before. And so I'd like to thank them for bringing it to my attention because it's a dire issue. It's the issue of, as you heard, maybe if we have those clips, maternal death rates in the United States. Amnesty International put out a report that pointed out that in the United States, maternal death rates rival countries like North Korea and Zimbabwe. And while I don't trust any stats coming out of North Korea, the death rates for women giving birth in this supposedly the most advanced country in the world are shockingly high. So what can we do about it? The answer is also shocking, and it's kind of encouraging, but kind of confusing that we have such a clear answer. Sarah Cliff, who is the senior policy correspondent for Vox, has an excellent podcast called The Impact. And what she does is she talks about policy stories. The, in the real world, someone with an idea puts this idea into play and we see if it solves the problem. And it turns out this problem can be solved and has been almost completely solved in the biggest state in the United States, California. Sarah Cliff, thanks for coming on and talking about this. Yeah, thank you for having me. How'd you how'd you find out that the issue of maternal death was such a dire issue in the United States in the first place? So this is something we've been seeing play out in the data really in the past few years. I think it was something that wasn't really on the radar until we started seeing a few high-profile studies that were showing that while in our peer countries, places like the UK, Canada, Sweden, Australia, maternal mortality is going down. But in the United States, it's actually increasing. You know, if you go back to the 1990s, we were right in the middle of the pack for developed countries for how many women died due to childbirth-related complications. Now, we're nowhere near our peers. A woman giving birth here in the United States is eight times more likely to die than she is in some European countries. And it's just like an astounding situation for, you know, this day and age that there's such a disparity. So why do they think that is? It's a little hard to tell. Um, you know, I think there's a few factors going on. One is... It, that there's a lot more chronic conditions, things like hypertension, diabetes, that can make health delivering a baby a little bit more complex. Um, the second is, you know, we have a really different healthcare system than those other countries I'm talking about. We have a much less robust healthcare system where a lot of people are uninsured, aren't having regular access to care. And there aren't really, I'd say the third thing is there aren't really a lot of good standards in childbirth for figuring out how to deal with complications. And that can leave American patients vulnerable. You know, if they are dealing with a complication in childbirth, they that can leave them vulnerable to the complication getting out of hand. Right. Although I would say, you know, in the 90s, everything you were saying was true. Mm -hmm. Also, we did not have national health care and they did. Uh, and also in, say, the UK, obesity has gone up almost as much as it has in the United States. 
so yeah, it is a little bit of a mystery, right? There, there. It doesn't seem like there's one clear answer. No, there. I think that's a great point. You know, some of these things were true back then. They've gotten worse. Researchers, you know, don't have a great sense of, of why it's getting so much worse. Yeah. But I think it actually comes back to that third thing of not having specific standards for how to deal with complications in childbirth is something else you see in healthcare systems that are more nationalized that have kind of more of a central planning element versus ours where. It's essentially left up to each hospital to decide what they think is the best way to deliver a baby or deal with a complication. And, you know, some of them just might not have great practices in those situations. Right. So in many situations, what you have to do is figure out why. But in this one, it seems like uh, the why is perplexing, but the how to stop it actually isn't. Tell me who you found in California to tell this story through. Yeah, so in California, they've done amazing work preventing moms from dying in childbirth. While you look at the rest of the United States and the maternal mortality rate has been going up, it's actually been going down in California. You see the exact opposite trend. Um, And what they have something there, it's called the Maternal Health Collaborative. And they have decided to create those best practices to say, okay, if a woman is hemorrhaging, if she's lost this much amount of blood, here is what you need to do. And they're making, and they're doing research to figure out what are the best responses. They're asking providers to, you know, be very scientific about it, to literally, you know, measure the amount of blood that a woman is losing so they can decide what the best intervention is. So they really are trying to bring the science across the state so that when there is a problem, providers are better equipped to respond to it. Yeah, just to underline this, in many other states and before they started really thinking about it in a rigorous way in California, a mother could be losing massive amounts of blood, but just how massive? The doctor would eyeball it. The doctor would (laughs) estimate. We're talking about the life and death of of a woman and there was no scientific rigor brought to the process that's astounding and it's astounding it's still going on like that in as per your reporting something like 49 states yeah you know it's actually funny i had a baby um in june Sorry. i know congratulations <laughs> and um we went to this like pre-birth class and you know they're telling us all these things about the hospital and of course, I'm, you know, the annoying reporter in the back. I raise my hand and like I ask, and this is a nice hospital in Washington, D.C. I ask, you know, how how do they deal with complications? You know, are there certain procedures or practices they have in place? And I got a kind of wishy-washy answer, you know, because I had reported this podcast right before I was, I was having my own baby. And it really isn't widespread, this practice. But Childbirth is such a common experience. It's the most common reason that a healthy woman in her reproductive years is going to be admitted to a hospital. And we still don't make these practices standards. It's pretty, you know, on the one hand, I'd say it's pretty upsetting and frustrating, you know, that at the hospital I delivered at, they didn't really seem to have taken these principles to heart. But I guess on the other hand, you know, a silver lining is these aren't big, fancy technologies. It's not like you need to spend $10,000 on some new machine. The thing that actually seems to work is a really, really cheap intervention of just having a checklist for how you handle things. And that's encouraging because that's something, you know, really any hospital could implement. Well, that's the encouraging and discouraging part, which is it doesn't seem hard. It just seems like you have to have a plan of attack 
if something goes bad, have it literally be written down. I think in your report or the doctors who implement it call it an algorithm. It mm-hmm. really just seems like a checklist. <laughs> it's a fancy Algor- name for a checklist. Yeah, I think of algorithm and, you know, this opaque box and Google and I'm getting uh, I'm getting ads for, you know, badminton equipment for some reason. Right? This is a checklist and it includes things like measuring the <laughs> amount of blood. And what was the part about having all the instruments on hand at once and not having to leave the room? Oh, yeah, that was a really important part of it. So one of the things they realized is if they were going to treat a hemorrhage in a woman, you know, who had just had a baby, they would have to go to eight different parts of some in some hospitals. They have to go to eight different places to get all the equipment they needed. So one of the th- one of the things they did is they created a hemorrhage kit. This is kind of similar to a cold a code blue kit, which you would see in other parts of healthcare to you know deal with someone who's lost their pulse. Except this is to, for someone who's dealing with significant blood loss. Now in California, you know, they're going to keep those kits in the maternity or in the labor and delivery units so that if there is a hemorrhage, you know, you don't have people running around the hospital looking for supplies. They're all there in one place. And I think that's a really important. And again, you know, this isn't something that costs a lot of money. It's just a reorganization. I think often the hardest thing, though, is you have a lot of providers who are used to doing things one way. You say, I've been delivering babies for 20 years, and like I can eyeball blood loss. I've, I've got this. And one of the hardest things seems to be just that culture change of asking people who have been doing something for decades to do it differently. That can be very, very challenging. I have to believe that most doctors, there's no real monetary inducement to have worse procedures than better in this case. In fact, you'd probably be better off just in terms of your insurance rates and everything else, saving more lives than you lose. Okay. Yes. So sometimes there's there's a monetary incentive. I really do think that what's going on, no one's saying, keep your government regulations off my preventing women from dying. No one's saying that. It's just that they don't know. If the de Blasio administration introduces it because they heard your podcast, You'd have to think that the information is not out there that A, this is a crisis, and B, someone solving the crisis. Yeah. And I think one other thing that's going on, it just has to do with how we treat women and childbirth. And, you know, I've seen this in my professional experience and my personal experience is women often get kind of treated as the vessel for the baby, that it is a very baby focused procedure of having, you know, giving birth in the United States where you see a lot more focus on is the baby okay, How are they doing versus is the mom okay, And how is she doing? Um, ProPublica has done some wonderful, wonderful reporting on maternal mortality that's gotten a lot of recognition. And, you know, they had this quote in there that really resonated to me that, you know, when you're pregnant, you know, you're essentially a a wrapper that gets discarded and the baby is the candy bar inside. And and I think you really have to have a mindset shift. Um, One of the things that we've seen a lot in ProPublica's reporting is women often aren't trusted when they say they're experiencing pain. And, you know, no one is is immune from this. Serena Williams had a major complication and, you know, really had to fight to get her nurses and doctors to listen to her, that she, you know, was actually having a serious blood clot situation after having her baby. So I think you also need a medical establishment that is going to take women and their reports of pain and complications much, much more seriously than it currently does. I think that since I heard your report or since it 
came out, the statistics got even better, or depending on how you look at it, worse for the states that aren't California and the one or two that have adopted those policies. In other words, California, I think you quoted uh, um, maternal mortality rate in the sevens, and now from what I see, it's under five. But the average hasn't really changed to about 17 deaths per, what is it, 100,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's slow, hard work rolling out, you know, when there's a new drug that comes out, there's so much advertising for it, and it's really easy to get it out into the market. When there's like a new checklist or algorithm, it is just slow, hard work of getting it rolled out, making sure people are aware of it, making sure they're going to follow it with fidelity, you know, and and that's a lot of work. It requires changing up your supplies, rearranging your labor and delivery rooms, getting buy-in from all your doctors. So even though it's you know, a really pressing issue, the things we know about how to fix it are just frustratingly slow. You know, there's no pill we can prescribe women that's going to help them not die in childbirth. It's really all about organizational practices and, you know, workplace culture. And those are things that are, you know, just tough things to change. Right. But we know it works and we know it could cut this terrible problem in at least by 75 or 80 percent because it's happened in the biggest state. So, Sarah, it looks like the kind of tough where the implementation and the hard work is tough, but the actual game plan of how to do it is, is really quite well known. And it's probably good that presidential candidates are championing this, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And I think another thing that's encouraging is, you know, we're seeing it, we're seeing buy-in in states that are really different. Like I mentioned, South Carolina has recently started implementing the California model. Like those are two places that have pretty different politics, pretty different demographics, but they agree that this is a good policy intervention. So one of the things I like about the California approach is, you know, it's not really running into any sort of, it doesn't seem to run into political obstacles. Like when you tell state officials, this is what works, it seems like we're seeing buy-in from people who have very different views and other types of health policy. Sarah Cliff is the host of The Impact Podcast. Does it have an impact? Just ask the de Blasio administration. She is the senior policy correspondent for Vox. And as far as we know, the only person ever to ask her mommy and me class to go on the record, entirely on the record. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Today, President Trump said something honest after saying something dishonest about honesty. First, here's the preamble. So I have to be honest. No, you don't. You're the most dishonest human alive today. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that you might be the most dishonest human in history. The Washington Post has the Donald Trump lie count is 9,179. The Toronto Star's Daniel Dale, my personal gold standard in presidential mendacity tabulation, has Trump at having uttered 4,625 false claims. Actually, that was as of Sunday. You got to add some of the stuff he said today. So Donald Trump doesn't have to be honest. He almost never is. But guess what? He then said something that actually was honest. I've never liked them much. Hasn't been for me. I believe Donald Trump on this one. And to give our embarrassing leader credit, he did make a cogent criticism of one aspect of John McCain's record. And the other thing is we're in a war in the Middle East that McCain pushed so hard. He was calling Bush, President Bush, all the time, get into the Middle East, get into the Middle East. Yup. Of course, 
Trump gilds that critique with lies about how he, Trump, was against the war in Iraq. Trump also buttressed his criticism of McCain with grandiose and misleading claims about his, Trump's, triumphs when it comes to serving the needs of veterans and how veterans like Trump more than they like McCain. Another piece of the critique was to assail McCain for saving the ACA. And a final part actually reflected on Trump quite shamefully insofar as he emphasized loyalty to Trump over loyalty to country. A fake and phony dossier. Do you hear about the dossier? It was paid for by crooked Hillary Clinton, right? And John McCain got it. He got it. And what did he do? Didn't call me. He turned it over to the FBI, hoping to put me in jeopardy. And uh, that's not the nicest thing to do. You know, when those people say, because I'm a very loyal person. No, it's not nice to Trump. It's just patriotic to America. Trump went on to bemoan the fact that he, Trump, wasn't thanked for approving McCain's funeral, which was approved by Congress, by the way, not the president. And in general, he, Trump, covered himself in, what is the opposite of glory? Oh yeah, raw sewage in pursuit of this character assassination of a dead man. But there was one senator who would rise and say no. Johnny Hardy Isaacson, Republican, Georgia. He says no more, sir. At long last, no more. I shall stand against these calumnies and offer a denunciation. Johnny Isaacson, a senator from Georgia, did an interview with A.B. Stoddard that was just posted in the bulk work. He says, I just want to lay it on the line that the country deserves better. The McCain family deserves better. I don't care if he's president of the United States, owns all the real estate in New York, or is building the greatest immigration system in the world. Nothing is more important than the integrity of the country and those who fought and risked their lives for all of us. Wow. Well, here's a hypothetical, Senator Isaacson. What if Trump was kind of a small bit shyster in the real estate game and also actually had the worst immigration policy in the world? Would you hate him even worse? Would you change your tune to the bulwark, not the bulkwark, which is, I think bulkwark is a character in the Clone Wars or one of those Star Wars movies. For Johnny Isaacson, this, this, the insulting of John McCain was where he made his stand in a strongly worded interview with a magazine that CNN can't pronounce. Not when the president shut down the government, not when the president instituted so-called emergency funding to get the money that the Congress denied him, not when he continued funding Saudi Arabia in their war in Yemen. Listen, I'm not just listing misdeeds that you could fault Trump for. I am literally listing misdeeds within the last few months that plenty of Republican senators stood up and opposed. Not Johnny Isaacson. None of those were fighting words for Johnny Isaacson. But if you insult John McCain, you've gone too far. Because John McCain was a man who shared Johnny Isaacson's values and shared... Johnny Isaacson's job, U.S. Senator, and shared Johnny Isaacson's demographic background, and shared Johnny Isaacson's class status. Isaacson was listed as the 12th richest senator with a net worth of $25 million in the same year that McCain came in 14th in the richness tallies. And once you give insult to that, you, sir, have gone too far. So listen, Donald Trump deserves criticism on all manner of thought policy statement indeed. He's a bad president, and I'm going to say he's, he's not a good person. I'm going to say it. But if I were to climb atop a mountain, a 
of Trump misdeeds. And I was sitting there at the summit, whether the summit be the Charlottesville statements or the summit being believing Putin on election hacking or babies in cages, whatever the apex of this, the national nadir was. And if I were to look down and try to make out where the misdeed of insulting John McCain was, you know, I'd have to look past all the emoluments violations. I'd have to look past the racist insults about IQ. I'd have to look past lie after lie after lie after lie. I'm not going to say that word four to 8,000 times. I'd have to look past the terrible tariff policies that are hurting so many people in my district, no matter where my district was, pretty much. I'd have to look past the lies about the tax cuts. I'd have to look past, I don't know, eating papers so they can't be archived. If that happened, that's, that's pretty bad. I would not be able from this high perch, from this mountain of Trump's misdeeds, I would not be able to make out a thin wisp of a strand of alabaster hair on John McCain's blanched noggin. And that describes his head when he was alive. So this is the hill that Johnny Isaacson is going to cry on. It reflects pretty poorly on Johnny Isaacson. Trump's been a roiling disaster since he announced his intention to be president. And where have you been, Senator Isaacson? Pretty far from a bulwark or bulwark of rectitude protecting this democracy that John McCain fought and served for. Johnny Isaacson is a lot better than Donald Trump. A lot better. But if the standard to aspire to is John McCain, he's pretty damn far from that too. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader who do not care when I insult senators, governors, presidents, pennies, plastic straws, mob bosses, and murderers. But if I ever insult a video game, well, then I've got a wildcat strike on my hands. We ask you to subscribe to the GIST newsletter. It's at slate.com slash GIST news. And there you will find links to interesting articles that I read and answers to trivia questions, including this one, which is going to take you on a journey. You ready? The actor who the studio wanted to play Don Corleone, went on to star in a TV show where his character had the same last name as a character famously played by Don Corleone's consigliere. Who was, oh, let's just say, what's the last name? You get the last name of these two different characters, you've pretty much solved the question. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She does not care if I insult any non-Slate podcast with one exception, she draws a line, and that line is somewhere between Dezus and Mero. The gist, we would like to welcome the bulk wark to the fraternity of mispronounced podcasts. Sincerely, as has been identified on MSNBC a couple of times, The Grist. Umpru de Peru de Peru, and thanks for listening.